Welcome to Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Tonight on Socalo Radio, we examine Mexicanness with the brilliant writer Alma Guillermo Prieto and the strange history and even stranger future of Los Angeles with urban critic Norman Klein. Alma Guillermo Prieto, a recipient of the MacArthur Genius Award, has written for The New Yorker, The New Yorker Review of Books, and many other publications. Her books include The Heart That Bleeds and Dancing with Cuba. She visited Socalo a few weeks ago to explore evolving notions of Mexican national identity. Reflecting on her life as a writer, after a dance career in the cosmopolitan world of art, Guillermo Prieto tells of her homecoming to Mexico after many years in Nicaragua, El Salvador, Paris, and Brazil. In this lecture, recorded live as part of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series at BP Hall and Walt Disney Concert Hall, she candidly speaks of her ambivalence toward her home country and how she came to write about the garbage dumps of Mexico City and mariachi music. Here is Alma Guillermo Prieto. I can talk about Mexico and I can talk about what it has meant in my reporting life and how that culture informed what I did. I grew up in Mexico, but also I grew up in Los Angeles, which is something that I don't very often refer to because it was an unhappy period of my life. But I grew up in this divided, bicultural world. And I think that my writing has over the course of my life, been an attempt to join those two worlds. I have a theory about revolutionary leaders, which is that a remarkable number of them come from split families. And usually they come from a split family where the father is rich and the mother is the servant, the maid, the washerwoman. And their revolutionary activity, and this is, you know, Sandino to Tomás Borges to Fidel Castro. I see their revolutionary activity as an attempt, really, to shatter that divided world and bring it back together again in some united way. My life as a writer has been an attempt to create a world inside me I think that I can live with because it's been so hard to belong to two cultures and two countries, one of which invaded the other, one of which took half of the other for its own and appropriated it. And so I've, I've tried to make some kind of a restoration. I didn't come to writing easily. In fact, I came to it quite by accident. Some of you may know that I was a dancer before and that I made a particular point, I think, of existing in the cosmopolitan world of art. What is it about art that is so extraordinary and wonderful? It belongs to everyone. It has no owners. And coming from a country like Mexico, which is so distrustful of any foreign element, and moving to New York, which is so completely accepting of everything that it can use to create with. New York is like just one huge creating machine, right? You put things in and other things come out. 
and art is like that. I found enormous relief in being in the cosmopolitan place where I could feel undivided or where being divided was irrelevant. I went to a very wonderful school on scholarship and I know that somebody who went to school with me then is here tonight who I haven't seen since then. This school was a school created really by old Jewish revolutionaries and leftists. It was called the Walden School. And I was so happy to be there. I didn't realize I, that Jewish and New Yorkish were not the same thing. I literally thought that they were synonymous. Literally. It, it came as a great shock to me to discover that you could be Jewish and not be a New Yorker, that you could be a New Yorker and in some way not be Jewish. I tried to assimilate into Jewishness. And then I moved into the dance world and discovered the great cosmopolitanism of Twyla Tharp, of Merce, even of Martha. And it wasn't until long after I gave up dancing that, quite by accident, I became a reporter. And I started in Nicaragua. And it was many, many years before someone asked me the question, well, how has being Mexican influenced you? And I thought, <laughs> by the enormous relief I felt at not having to be Mexican, of starting in Nicaragua, covering a revolution in Nicaragua, and feeling myself to be Latin American, or inspired, <laughs> which was what so many of us felt in Nicaragua at that time, or, or simply purposeful, which was what a revolution can make so many people feel. And I didn't go back to Mexico for 15 years. I lived in Nicaragua, I lived in El Salvador, I lived in Brazil, I lived in Colombia, I lived in New York, I lived in Paris, and when I went back to Mexico, I was like, this shock, the overwhelming sense of Mexicanness was such a discovery. I'd been so relieved to be free of the weight of the damn thing, you know. Sometimes I feel like Mexicans, we wander around with pyramids on our back the whole time, <laughs> just carrying these 2,000 years of history with us. And everything we do has to refer back to that same damn history. And for 15 years, I was just anybody I wanted to be. I was a reporter, I was a Latin American, I was free. And then you come back, and there, by God, are the tortillas, and the Virgin of Guadalupe, and that particular smell of charcoal, which until about 15 years you could still have in the mornings as you went out in, in the more popular barrios of people lighting their little boilers to heat their water for their shower with sticks of wood or making their tortillas with charcoal. The buzz, the noise, the rockets 
going off for all of the fiestas of all of the pueblos and all of the churches all over Mexico, the absence of silence. (laughs) (sighs) There it was, you know, just the wave coming over me and I was overwhelmed. And there's no point, I mean, this is such a silly thing to say, who has not discovered this in the course of a lifetime, but there's no point in running away. You know, you cannot but be who you are. And so I kind of relaxed into my Mexicanness and thought, all right, you know, I hate this country. It's so corrupt. It's so vile. It's so distrustful of success. It tears down people who are successful. It is so full of envy of those who cross to the other side of the border. You know, it denigrates people who cross to the other side of the border by calling them frijoleros, pochos, mojados, because Mexicans in Mexico are secretly afraid of the success that Mexicans outside of Mexico might have. I hate all of that. But there I am, and there it is, and it's me. And so I started to write about Mexico. And what really interested me was this question of how culture can shape a national identity, and a national identity can shape the politics of a country in such a tight way. Particularly, the first story I wrote on coming back was a story about the garbage dumps of Mexico City. And I wrote that story in 1990, I guess, 1990-91. And I wrote it partly out of the most Mexican part of me as a burial ritual for an animal whose death I had learned of many, many years before. Sometime in 1978, 79, I had come back from Nicaragua to Mexico City briefly. I'd gone to the theater. I'd left the theater with my friends. Ovaciones still had an evening edition. Somebody was hawking the evening edition of Ovaciones on the street. And the headline was Rata Gigante Mutante. Giant Mutant Rat. And there was a picture of this animal. And the animal, in fact, just like the caption said, had the head of a lion, the paws of a bear, the body a size of a, the size of a Volkswagen, and the tail of a rat. And this was in long before Photoshop, and we all stared at this picture. <laughs> we thought, what in the world is this? And the next day, in page 37 of Excelsior, we found the little article which said that the Rata Gigante Mutante was in reality an old circus lion. And that when it died, its owners had skinned it before throwing it into the Mexican sewer system where it had been found. And this animal stayed with me. And the story about the Mexican garbage dumps really comes out of the Mexican need to give proper burial 
to the deceased. I felt it couldn't just end its life like that. Somebody had to take note of it. And that started me thinking about garbage. You know, this lion disposed of in the sewer system. How people disposed in Mexico of their garbage. The enormous garbage cities that existed on the outskirts of Mexico. And so I went and had a look at these garbage cities where people lived by the tens of thousands in those days, not so very long ago, 1990. And it turned out that all of these garbage workers were ruled. Because in Mexico, nobody cannot be ruled. It's a pyramid. They were ruled by local caciques who were affiliated with the then ruling party, the PRI, the Revolutionary Institutional Party. And I was stunned to make this discovery. Everything in Mexico reflects everything in Mexico. How many countries can you say that of? Maybe Japan, I don't know, maybe the Japanese go around saying, I am very Japanese. And that everything in Japan reflects the Japanese culture. Not the States, this, you know, the States is a completely diverse country. And so nothing in the States reflects everything in the States. Everything leads to something new. Everything goes spinning off in some rocket-like direction. But in Mexico, everything reflects everything. So that when you have a garbage dump, you have people living in it, making sure that nothing goes to waste. What a Mexican thing to do. Old Mexican. And then you have people ruling it in a system of absolute despotic power. So that was my great rediscovery of Mexico through the garbage dumps. And then I wrote about mariachi music. From the idea of mariachi music being a source of national identity that was so under threat at that time. And from the great question that I had and which perhaps those of you who are Mexican living on this side of the border have constantly, which is, how are you Mexican when Mexicanness is no longer solid, when Mexicanness no longer has the shape of a pyramid? How do people survive culturally when their culture is being destroyed? When their culture is being ravaged by modernity, let us say, or by garbage culture, by garbage movies and by garbage radio and by garbage food? How do you remain Mexican? And so I thought, If I am in a state of despair about Mexico, which I am, I'm in a state of despair about drugs, about the devastation of the culture, about the inability of a civic society to build itself up. I thought the thing about culture is that it doesn't die and it doesn't go away. It's like water. It keeps on flowing and it goes through streams and it picks up different flavors along the way. And then it comes out again and you taste it. And by God, that water is still Mexican. And it's a great and mysterious and powerful thing to me that the one thing that makes me feel hopeful about this 
country that I so loathe so often is that we can still be Mexican but now we're maybe cosmopolitan and we're maybe reconciled to the idea of not having to be just a pyramid of being able to be many kinds of Mexican, many forms of Mexican, and that even I can be Mexican. Me with my dual culture, me with my English, me with my Spanish from all over the place, me writing in English for English language publications, even I can be Mexican. And this makes Mexico a stronger country for once, after the horrendous 20th century that it's been to. And I'm very grateful for having had the opportunity to talk with you. Thank you very much. You're listening to writer Alma Guillermo Prieto. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio. This fall, the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series continues to invite top-notch guests, including Councilwoman Jan Perry, LACMA's Michael Govan, conservative luminary Michael Gerson, and acclaimed novelist Francisco Goldman. Events are free, but reservations are recommended. For more information and to reserve seating, click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. Now the Socalo audience asks questions of Alma Guillermo Prieto. My name is Moisés Zamora. I'm a young novelist that just came back from uh, Mexico City, uh, where I published my first book in Spanish. And I did... Um, have that same feeling of despair for the very first time. I grew up in both countries, and for the very first time I got that wave, uh, especially from such a city like Mexico City. It was a wonderful experience, but it's also traumatic. But our question is, what advice or could you give me or perhaps any tips or anything that I could confront this biculturally in a more hopeful way? Hmm. I'm not in the business of giving advice <laughs> or tips to anyone, I think that for me, going back and living there was a great good thing. I think artists like Francisco Goldman, whose novels you may have read, who is, he's, he has, has it even worse than we do, he is Jewish Guatemalan, you know. He's Jewish, Jewish Boston Guatemalan, and there's just... <laughs> it's bad. And <laughs> he just deals with it by writing about it. And I'm also not greatly in favor of the Chicano novel and not greatly in favor of the kind of autobiographical this is my experience novel. But what I do know is that there is great narrative to be had out there in that world. You know, if you're addicted to narrative, if you're addicted to stories, then Mexico in this new world is just incredibly full of stories and if you work on them if you focus on them if you looking if you look for them and not so much you know your own little mm, pain or whatever i i think that there's just a wealth of material out there that creatively can be useful to you but that also can be tremendously useful to people who are trying to figure out their new identity on the mexican side of the border as much as on this one Hi, my name is Olivia Segura, and I found your um, experience really interesting. I had the opposite experience of you. I grew up here in the United States, and I moved to Mexico City when I was in my 20s, and I found a freedom and a release that I never found in the United States. 
But I also found that a lot of people, when I was there, were trying to tell me all the bad stories of Mexico and how terrible it was, and it was almost a sport. <laughs> and to them, I said, well, I've heard everything bad. I mean, I live in the United States, and I get the media all the time, and it's always focusing on, on the bad issues of Mexico. So I really found that by being there and measuring things in a different way, Mm-hmm. Different from mm-hmm. how I measure mm-hmm. things in, on my on a daily basis in the United States, mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it and I loved it. And I even became a Mexican citizen when I was there. When I came back, I had a culture shock. What do you think that that dichotomy? Well, is part of it to? is you know there is nothing so liberating as running away. We all know that. My, one of my very best friends for many, many, many years is uh, uh, Elaine Shipman, the dancer. And, and choreographer, and she is black. And she loves Paris, and she loves Mexico, because she goes to Paris, and she goes to Mexico, and she doesn't feel this enormous oppression of being black in the United States. And I think, what are you talking about? You know, France is one of the most racist countries in the world, and for that matter, so is Mexico. Doesn't matter, it's not her racism, <laughs> you know? <laughs> It's, it's not the racism that she had to deal with. And so I think for all of us, going somewhere else is always an enormously liberating experience because it frees us from the expectations that we expect people to have about us. And that's a fabulous thing. And that in turn frees us to be receptive to the phenomenally wonderful things that there are all around us. I'm not saying that Mexico is not a beautiful or fantastic country. I'm just saying I hate it so often. At the same time that I am obsessed with it and completely aware that I'll be Mexican until my very dying breath. I mean, saying I love it just seems unnecessary. I was very struck by what the way you depicted traditional Mexican attitudes towards people who've left. And it is... And it, Especially in the, in the days of the pre, there was a sort of sense that once you crossed the border, you know, out of mind, out of sight, and you betrayed the patria and you were a pocho and all that. Do you think that has changed in recent years? And is there, is it, is there a notion now of a Mexican diaspora that might alter Mexicanness? Yeah. I, I would like to ask people in the audience who are Mexicans from this side who have gone to Mexico recently, if they feel the difference. I certainly feel the difference. You know, every family in Mexico, every, 80% of all Mexican families now have somebody from their family or somebody they know close to them living in the United States. It, it just changes the whole equation. I was talking about that today with someone. It makes you cosmopolitan, you know, to, to go back to that wonderful world again. You, you can't have the, the barriers drawn and you can't have the moat filled with alligators anymore because whether you like it or not, Mexicans belong to too many different cultures right now. It's changed attitudes enormously. And because also now for the last 12 years there's been, I don't know if I would call them free elections, but there's been a choice. And elections have been fair. And so candidates have to respond to the electorate to some degree. And all of a sudden, there's a demand from people to say something about protecting the rights of Mexicans who come to this country. 
That's why Felipe Calderón is on Bush's case for a lot of good that does. But, you know, that, that's why that policy really became important. And it hadn't been important before. Hi, Alma. My name is Josh. Why don't you ever want to come back here and write about this city the way you do about Mexico? Because I didn't feel it ever belonged to me. I spent the five years that I spent here from age six to age 11 basically sort of out of communication with the world. I, I was very, 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 very unhappy. And so I have no memories of L.A. I was not in a Mexican community. I was very isolated. I was the daughter of a divorced woman in a white working-class neighborhood in the 1950s. Can you imagine what that was? So I, I, don't, I don't really feel any connection with the city. I'd That's like fine. to follow up, though, by saying when you were here, this was not necessarily a Mexican-majority city. And this day and age, your neighborhood is probably Latino, right? <laughs> <laughs> and you'd find a lot of different things to write about now. So I just hope you would come back. Thank you. That's all. Thank you. No, it's definitely something. And I'll think very hard about this one. You've just heard Alma Guillermo Prieto. This is Socalo Radio. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This Tuesday, September 18th, the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series begins its fall season with the Jane Austen Book Club, a screening and conversation with director-screenwriter Robin Swicord, moderated by Pat Morrison, L.A. Times columnist and host of KPCC's Pat Morrison Show. After an advanced screening of the film, Pat Morrison will sit down with Robin Swicord, who adapted Karen Joy Fowler's best-selling novel for the screen. She also directed the picture, which stars, among others, Maria Bello and Emily Blunt. Robin Swicord is best known for her screen adaptations of Memoirs of a Geisha, Little Women, and The Perez Family. Join her as she discusses her career as a writer, her transition to film directing, and why she thinks Jane Austen is still all the rage more than two centuries after she published her first novel. More information is at our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. Up next, guest host Adolfo Guzman Lopez catches up with urban critic Norman Klein. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. Programming on 89.3 KPCC is made possible by the W.M. Keck Foundation, supporting community-based organizations in Southern California and advancements in science, medical research, and higher education nationwide. Coming up on Monday on Pat Morrison, a look at five years of No Child Left Behind, what it's meant for public education in Southern California. The bill is up for reauthorization in Congress this month. And poetry from Guantanamo Bay, 17 detainees' experiences in a new compilation. Those stories and the latest news on Pat Morrison at 1 o'clock Monday on 89.3 KPCC. Welcome back to Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Urban critic and media critic Norman Klein has published numerous essays on media, urban culture, animation, architecture, and globalization. His books include The History of Forgetting, Los Angeles and the Erasure of Memory. In his visit with guest host Southern California Public Radio's Adolfo Guzman Lopez, 
Klein explains why he prefers the accidents of organic mistakes and the curiosities of ruins and rebuilt things to the architecture of artifice and cultural tourism, such as the Grand Avenue Project. He also talks of his home in Highland Park with strange steps that go up in corners and how traffic problems are splitting the city into three parts. Here is Adolfo Guzman Lopez with Norman Klein. Norman Klein, thanks so much for joining me on Socalo. It's wonderful to be here. Now, Norman, you're Brooklyn born and raised. What do you think about New Yorkers who come to Los Angeles, say they hate it, and then start to say that they like it when they start finding things, places that remind them of New York? Well, first of all, you come with movie memories, and the movies are just, I often say, uh, like a coffee bean industry. They just, they just harvest in a plantation way. So you look, and after about a year, you notice that nothing you ever saw in the movies is actually in Los Angeles. Then you notice that Los Angeles is a city of neighborhoods because increasingly people can't go anywhere anyway, more than three or four miles. Within a 10-minute drive is actually a neighborhood in L.A. And then you become more and more fascinated by the eth- ethnography of it, and then you do what most people do you you develop a geological clock? You wait for winter, and then it's forty years later. Now you've been here for about thirty years. What brought <laughs> yeah, you here, and I'm, what were your where's first winter? <laughs> what, what brought you here, and what were your first impressions well, when you got I, here? I didn't come here for any sensible reason. My wife at that time needed to move every three years. Some people change cars; she would change cities, and she wanted to go back to the West Coast. And I was already an overeducated uh, sort of bohemian character working in restaurants, not knowing what, what to do. I was like the Ph.D. busboy, you know, that sort of thing. So I decided I better go to Los Angeles where there's a larger a set of possibilities, and I, I uh, got my driver's license, and we drove off, and we hit the, the fiercest blizzard in 40 years, and her Volkswagen was spinning around, and then we were taken in by these people, this lawyer for the weekend because we couldn't move, and uh, he was doing some kind of murder trial, and then I arrived in L.A. not knowing. So it was completely a kind of pinball randomness. And then I went to get another degree at USC in cinema and, and a professional writing, professional writing program, and then wound up at CalArts. And then after about two or three years, began to get uh, fascinated by uh, old parts of the city west of downtown. And eventually I bought a gang house that's now worth a fortune. Of course, I sold it in time, so I made no money. But uh, <laughs> so many people have done well by it. And I noticed all sorts of odd things in the basement and odd bits and pieces of fragments, missing things. It became very clear in stages that Los Angeles was an archaeology of versions of the city that allowed me to talk about even New York and about urban experience. It was a seen as an antidote to the city, but despite its best intentions, L.A. became exactly what it promised not to be. And so it was the, the, the contradictions were fascinating already. And what's interesting is that not only New Yorkers, but it seems like most immigrants come here and they seem to try to look for or recreate the place where they came from, right? Um, no, because we could say Midwesterners. We could say oh, Latin yes. Americans, Absol- right? Absolutely. Well, from the beginning, Los Angeles was unique because it marketed what you brought with you. It's one thing to have a bit of Italy in southern Manhattan, 
or some um, market structure that resembled Eastern Europe or something like that, but to actually give people literally the town that they came from. This was done in the 1890s and afterward. I lived in a house that I bought this, this house that I had, had a special roof for the snow. It had a root cellar for curing apples. It had a tornado basement. And uh, not too far away were special viewing areas on the roof so you could watch the ships coming in from the Great Lakes. But it seems that Los I mean, Angeles... That's, that's 1908, you understand. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, so this has been going on for a very long time, but this it seems strange like, connection. But it seems like Los Angeles does it in very different ways, does, does this kind of recreation of the homeland in different ways. Our Chinatown here in Los Angeles is a recreation of the Chinatown that was torn down to build Union Station. I'm also thinking about Plaza Mexico, which is in Linwood. It's this outdoor mall that's made as a reproduction of a Mexican town, complete yes. with the church, with reproductions of Mexican monuments. It seems like places like Universal City Walk also work on this same idea. The Venetian Hotel in Las Vegas works on this idea of creating something and having everybody buy into this recreation. Oh, oh, but there's also yeah, the way but how do people buy into it? That's the curiosity. We have this notion that if something is a copy, it's artificial. If it's a copy, many other people people in Los Angeles often feel it's homemade, it's ironic, it's an interesting joke, it's a parody, it's a slapstick. They almost feel that it's as authentic as a copy. Years ago, there was talk about how simulacra or simulation was a copy without an original. In Los Angeles, for over 100 years, very often, the copy is the original, and it becomes a life of its own. It's a very unique history for a city. Other cities have done this. Rome is like that (laughs) in a certain strange way. But there's something so amazing about the way L.A. does it, so totally, so ambitiously, and and without without any any worry about how fake it is, fake is fine. Are are you okay with that? Do you advocate for that kind of construction, the like the Grove, like Universal City Walk? Well, Do you well, like from, that? Well, from no. Well, I'm I'm a happy dinosaur, but I have to admit that I don't feel comfortable in that level of artifice. I think in ten or twenty years, people won't notice the difference. I often say as a joke, if Brunelleschi, who helped invent the Renaissance look had actually known Roman history properly, they would have probably walked in togas for 200 years, and that would have been the end of it. So artificially understanding and misunderstanding is is not unusual, but the degree to which L.A. marketed, promoted, boosted itself from the 1890s forward has made it extraordinarily ripe. It's a tradition here. I don't know if I like it myself. I prefer the accidents of of organic mistakes and the curiosities of ruins and and rebuilt things. I like to feel the patina, but I realize that I'm increasingly the exception and that after a certain period of time, the copy will have as much authenticity as what we thought of as original before. We're going through a culture based on the artificial as a form of authenticity. It's very strange. It's ruining our politics and so forth. But it's, oh, it's, it's in our cities, and it's definitely in Los Angeles. And are you saying that you don't like that the marketing could be so overwhelming that it can 
it can push people to accept something that they would otherwise not? Is that well, what you're well, saying? Well, I think it also represents a different definition of being out in public. Our entire public life used to be leaving the house. That's where the sounds, that's where the news, that's where the people were. Now it's essentially inside our highly mediated home space, our home entertainment space. And I miss the public life. And I don't think watching a lot of people walking around like your imprinted ducklings necessarily makes it an answer to the problem. I don't think the pedestrian experience was what was central to the city. What was central to the city was not photographs of people walking in crowds, but photographs of people walking to someplace to get out of the crowd. <laughs> and I think we basically are using a theme park, suburban version of the city, and I miss the city. I miss the bookstores. I miss the cheaper theater. There still is a lot of it, but I miss I miss the energy. L.A. does actually have a lot of cheap small theaters, but I, I, I miss the enthusiasm of it. L.A. never was a pedestrian-driven city as much as some of the others, but I, I'm not comfortable with this designer, consumerati version of life, but I realize that as a critic and as a writer, I have to politically and emotionally engage it. I must make sense of it. It's interesting, it's fascinating, it's alienating, it's boring, it lacks paradox, but it's filled with paradox. It's my job to make nonsense of the sense or sense of the nonsense. I have to do this. So uh, it's not my job to like it. I could talk to my therapist about that. <laughs> uh, Norman Klein, what's your favorite street in Los Angeles? Oh, my favorite street in L.A.? It, um, it, it varies. I used to love walking through parts of Angelina Heights and into the Ramparts District and back and around and seeing all the contradictions, but now that feels too much like another themed environment to me compared to what it was. I'm living now in Highland Park, and I like some of the twists and turns and uh, these cement walkways. You, you know why these cement walkways exist, by the way? These strange steps that go up in corners through Echo Park and and in many parts of, of Latino Los Angeles. There were trolleys there. So every time you walk through one, try to listen for a red car slowly hissing to a stop and realize that you won't make it. It's going to drive off without you. It seems like the history of Los Angeles over the last 150 years has been of lots of immigrants coming in from different parts either of the world or of the United States. And it seems like every 30 or 40 years more or less, Los Angeles um, rebuilds itself or has to adapt to that. It's, and it seems like we're going through something like that right yes. now. What do you think about that? Are we going through something like that yes, right now? What's going What's going to be the outcome? Wow. Well, obviously, there are many Los Angeleses coming. Clearly, the traffic problems are breaking the city into three parts. The valley is splitting off between connecting with the west side and just being by itself. The west side and the east side of town are, there, are changing. I think the cultural future of the cities lies in the east side. And I think the east side is also essentially the capital, not just of Latino culture, which is to me, a very dangerous word because... Now, what east side are you talking about? The one uh, east of the river or the Echo Park Silver Lake east, east side? east of Western, as far as you want to, to go in the basin, making a big, a big oval <laughs> from northeast L.A. all the way down to, let's say, even towards Southgate, you know. 
a, a pretty it's a pretty big area. And why do you consider that the center? The the new future. I think the pricing and the sociology of the west side versus the east side have finally reached a saturation point, where West Los Angeles is becoming increasingly a kind of Manhattan, or kind of San Francisco, and it, the arts and culture and a lot of the political energy will probably shift toward the east side of town for the next 10, 20, 30 years. I, I'm, you know, the problem with crystal balls is they actually aren't crystal and they're just round. They're very gray and hard to see, but that is clearly one of the trends that, that's coming. And um, uh, it's, to me, the most fascinating to watch the second and third generations of this massive immigration and not just people from Latin America beginning to make a political and cultural mark, I want to speak for that. I've decided that should be part of Normanland. A few days ago, I was interviewing Exine Chervenka of the band X, the punk rock band from the 70s, and she was talking about how she came to L.A. after a cross-country road trip from Tallahassee, Florida, and she came here to live in the Venice of Jim Morrison, Ray Manzarek, The Doors, that that's what brought her here. I mean, that's all gone. That's the 70s. That's 70s. gone. But... Venice in the 70s brought, brought the architects. It brought the art critics. It brought uh, the writers. It was part of the fantasy. From 1960 until fairly recently, the West Side truly dominated the definition of, of L.A. culture. You could see it in the theater. You could see it in the museums that were built. You could see it in in the energy of the place. You could see it in the power structure, in the fashions, right? And I'm curious to see what a city that's the new Byzantium, this ethnographically mixed, when it begins to push into three separate cities because of traffic, because of ethnography, because of uh, the cost of housing. The last 10 years since the boom has really taken over and ended, have been a sociological shift so that now there really are two and three cities in Los Angeles. Interesting to, to imagine the multiples and where they're going to go. I don't think all of it will be fascinating. I think also an, another L.A. is evolving in places like uh, Riverside County, Rancho Cucamonga, pretty strange. <laughs> but certainly strange doesn't doesn't make it uninteresting. It's clear that... Orange County is maturing in some odd way. and It's almost like strange relatives are growing a face, and it's clear this face is going to become more their own. So we're going to see a multiple of, of urban experiences and inversions. The suburban has now become the model of downtown. The people now, what I'm sensing increasingly, many of them are coming uh, to parts of L.A., uh, even Echo Park, uh, Chinatown, Highland Park, not so much downtown. I don't think this Grand Avenue experience where for $100 you can get a hamburger and listen and listen to a concert is going to bring much culture. It'll just bring people with really good shoes <laughs> into, off the hotels. I think it's cultural tourism almost at its most ridiculous. I don't care how beautiful it will or won't look. I think it will not be where the culture will come. But I, th I think parts of Boyle Heights, Lincoln Heights, any number of areas are, are just going to start to have uh, some cultural energy. And, and I'm interested to see what that will be. It may not last for long, but I decided f for this month anyway uh, to, to speak <laughs> for the, the, the other Los Angeles 
which I think is going to become the mark of the Latino, quote, Los Angeles that people are looking for and, and trying to understand. What, what is this immigration going to do in the next 30 and 40 years? We know we're not going to solve. We're not going to solve the water problems very well. We're not going to build the schools fast enough. We're certainly not going to get the traffic fixed. So what are we going to become? You're listening to Urban Critic Norman Klein with guest host Adolfo Guzman Lopez. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio. If you have comments, critiques, or kudos about Socalo Radio, send them to comments at socalola.org. That's C O M M E N T S at Z O C A L O L A.org. This fall, the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series continues to invite top notch guests, including Councilwoman Jan Perry. LACMA's Michael Govan, conservative luminary Michael Gerson, and acclaimed novelist Francisco Goldman. Events are free, but reservations are recommended. For more information and to reserve seating, click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. Now back to Norman Klein with Adolfo Guzman Lopez. You're advocating the Latino future of Los Angeles, but if you take Not a listen... And, right, as 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 an important part of Los Angeles, but if you listen to other stations on the radio dial, there's still a lot of resistance to that Latino presence. And where's that coming from? And is that just going to die out? Oh no, it'll continue, and it'll be a separate culture. I mean, I I come from an immigrant family, immigrant Jewish family, and my childhood represented the first at least decade when Jews actually had something like a mainstreaming into the culture rather than the exception uh, and and the oddity and so on. And so I, I witnessed that transformation and it turns out that New York didn't look more like Poland when it was over. But the energy and the difference was very exciting for a few decades, you know, to watch the the energy, but the power people, the people who govern New York, just like the power people who govern Los Angeles, they're not going to simply, uh, simply in some politically correct way, actually give over their cultural power. And it won't be uh, necessarily a war. It will simply be a split. There'll be two and three worlds simultaneously in layers. LA is a city of layers, and it will grow even more layered, not less layered. So do not expect everyone to to understand or care for a long time. Well, if we if we follow that analogy, Latinos can be found up and down the social strata in Los Angeles. Absolutely. They're part of the professions, part of the political structure. That's, that's but it seems like that's... they haven't had they haven't achieved this kind of acceptance that you're talking about that Jews, but that will. Italians, oh, that Irish have achieved as within, within the next an immigrant 20 years group. it will simply become Whatever it is. Dr. Schwartz can't see you, but Dr. Gonzalez is here. So, oh, Dr. Gonzalez, that's great. (laughs) Latinos are so good in that specialty. (laughs) I mean, obviously, the poverty is monstrous and will continue, but it will be an interesting ride and it will have extraordinary pathology to it because I don't see how this class structure is going to come back. The middle class is being shrunken back, and it, it's a very weird moment. Americans can't understand that the future doesn't belong to them, 
But then when you speak to Latinos and Asians, they say, exactly what do you mean by that? <laughs> What's your problem, pal? You know, are you kidding? Do you know what it was like to be a Mexican in 1940 or, 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 or an Asian, a Chinese person in, 19, in 1920? So uh, the, the energy, the beacon that represents that American discovery the trackless wilderness that every immigrant discovers and gives to their next generation, that's going to come from the eastern side of the city more in a very complicated way. We're going to see a layered version of urban life that where we won't even know urban from suburban. Eventually, we're just going to run out of words. We're going to have to invent a new language for it. For many European documentary filmmakers, the name Norman Klein means expert of Los Angeles, expert of the future of Los Angeles. Why do Europeans come to you so much asking for your opinion about what's happening here? Well, I'm confused. In fact, someone once told me or some, some New York agent that, uh, you know, maybe I write like a European. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I said thank you very much and walked away. But, but it's... Hard to understand exactly. I was trained partly as a European. I grew up in a very Europeanized experience. But I'm truly mystified. I mean, it, it, it continues to go on. And I'm, I'm asked to do it often and to do an, these anti-tours, tours where I show people only what's missing. What fascinates me about a city is what's missing, not, what, not what's there. I, I like to touch the spot where something was and see if there's something still there. It's a very odd. Give me an example of that in L.A. I'm fascinated when buildings don't belong next to each other, when a project went along and then suddenly one person refused to let them put the housing development there, and then there's a large black walnut tree there, and then there's uh, just remnants of things. I'm, I'm fascinated by even walking on top of the Second Street Tunnel. I have people sit there. And then they, I, I ask them, why is this strange? And they say, what do you mean? He said, why is there a tunnel with nothing on it? Why, if they tore down that part of Los Angeles, did they keep the tunnels? I like odd bits of paradox, and I know that it, it's not a compliment to the city, but I'm, I'm fascinated also by how conversions take place and how things survive. Uh, I, I really loved for years living at about 1908 to 1910 in Los Angeles and seeing how the buildings maintained themselves and how they were changed. I, I like organic fractures, and I, 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 I find solace in it. I, I, I really like something that's missing. I'm, I'm an expert on the history of forgetting, and it doesn't make me gloomy. It makes me more interested. I want to see the humanity hidden in things. So, so I'm constantly trying to find places. That's why the Belmont Tunnel interested me. It wasn't just that it was this oddity. I actually found it strangely beautiful. And it seems that Europeans are in particular interested about Los Angeles, maybe more, like than, more so than New York, right? Yes, yes. And I, I often ask this question, why are you selecting Los Angeles? Obviously, you're here. And the answer I tend to get more often, it's an, it's an inexact poll, is uh, New York is just Europe. 
there's something about Los Angeles that represents almost all the problems that they can imagine. <laughs> and they, they really like the contrariness of it. So I, I was once asked to find the ugliest street in Southern California. So I selected a street, Fulton, at a, right at a point where it, it abutted into one of the most retinally unpleasant places I've ever seen. It wasn't that it was poor. It was just simply ugly. But then I lived about a block north, or three blocks north of there, and then this... Fulton, pal- where is it? Fulton in Van Nuys. Oh, okay. And this Palestinian pornographer was always chatting with me and trying to celebrate Jewish holidays with me. It was kind of curious because he knew when they were. It was, it was this odd with a big picture <laughs> of Hitchcock and, and this very buxom girlfriend, you know, scrubbing up his apartment. And and he said, oh, don't you see, if you follow all the falafel stands over there, it actually is basically a map of the Middle East. And suddenly this ugly place became interesting. Then I noticed the wrestlers that were there. Then I noticed the old Jewish ladies from the f- 50s who were retiring there. And then I saw some of the film people there. And suddenly I realized, my God, this place is is ugly like an old relative. It's, it's a strange, ugly thing. And I, I, I found it oddly compelling. I, I don't want something to be beautiful. I want it to be honest and to, to have a human scale. So very often odd stores, odd bits and pieces of things that have happened fascinate me. I, I'm, I'm, sometimes I even, to, to be honest, love a building before they finish cleaning it up when you can still see the carpenter's marks, when they haven't painted it and scrubbed it and make it look like, truly, as I said, no one's moved in, in yet. I like patina, and I like spaces to converse with me. And I, I find L.A. actually has quite a few of those. I mean, Artish is a weird place. Have you been there? I mean, that's... Oh, the, Little the, India? The, yeah. yeah. What is that? Yeah, you know? Pioneer Boulevard, right? <laughs> so so I'm, I'm prepared to accept the innocuous and peculiar as fascinating in Los Angeles, I'm not asking that it be complete. I accept its incompleteness because it represents the struggle and the humanity for me of how a city can work. The other interesting part about what you do is that you embrace new technology quite a bit. Why is it that you embrace some of the new media that's coming out to tell your stories or to tell uh, you, to disseminate your essays, your research, where some of your other academic colleagues have not? Oh, absolutely. But there's some degree of interest. I mean, uh, yes, I, I do work in media and write about media, uh, partly because I think that's fundamentally where our public and private identity is going, and it's my job to not question it, but to just humanize it as much as these these ugly, <laughs> ugly corners of a city. And I also feel that our definition of data and research and fiction and fact are inverting. We're living in a world of inversions. Uh, we suburbanize downtowns. We, we, we turn rural neighborhoods into manufacturing centers. We, we live publicly in our house. We go out privately to be in, in a world to shop. We do all sorts of things. And the media is at the center of these inversions. It's the power vector. It's the uh, painting device that is really painting with a machine gun. It's how power operates. And we have to make new forms. I think we're in an era where we really have to make new forms. And my job is to give permission. So if I'm a decent critic, I should at least 
try out what it is I'm claiming is possible. Did you learn that lesson at film school at USC that you have to no. embrace the new well, technology to tell a story? Film school at USC wasn't about new, new anything. Film school, it was, it was – I, mean, I learned that I didn't belong <laughs> in the film industry. And it was, it was a kind of a gloomy prospect. But I, I didn't actually worry about it that much. I, I made so many mistakes as a young man. I, I always feel I'm a, a good example of bad career planning, you know. So I where did you learn that lesson to um, just put your work, work in, on CD-ROMs, use audio, that sort of thing? Working in the art world through uh, CalArts and writing about media and power and politics in the city and just uh, by accident. And it was actually in many ways the Europeans that pushed me into it. They gave me these this one project to do. I have another one coming up on how the 20th century was imagined before it happened. It's going to be a gigantic database novel, 2,200 images, one super novel, and it'll open as an exhibition. You'll be able to take it home. And I'm fascinated by the potential and even by the silliness of what media does. I think it's necessary that people like me invite new forms. I just feel it's my job as a critic and as a writer, and Los Angeles should be the ideal place to nurture this. I don't think it really behaves that way. I think Los Angeles, culturally, frankly, is much too cautious and too, provincial too, too filled in, with self-loathing. Provincial in some regards? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I think, I think it doesn't trust itself. And any version of, of a cut-glass accent, you know, uh, from some, some point back east immediately seems smarter than L.A. itself. I think L.A. is wasting its cultural capital enormously. I think it should do a better job, and maybe it will. So actually, I do a lot of this work on L.A., outside of L.A., but I'm determined to show the city of Los Angeles within my limits what's possible through media, and, and that it could be as powerful and intimate as a novel. Norman Klein, thanks so much for joining me on Socalo. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to urban critic Norman Klein with guest host Adolfo Guzman Lopez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Socalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. Catch us again next Sunday, or we'll see you at one of our free events around town. For more info, go to SocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. The executive producer for Socalo Radio is Peter Stenshold. Douglas Gary is our engineer. Thank you for tuning in. Weekdays on 89.3 KPCC.